you are in grief and, and you desperately want to connect to a loved one and you get a powerful reading that convinces you beyond a doubt that you know the medium was connecting you that could have tremendous positive effects on your grief i mean we've seen it time and time again that people and actually you know it, it flips them from living a, a life of sorrow and despair to one of hope and, and comfort and, and meaning and purpose This is Before It's Too Late. I'm your host, Christian Suzanne. Let's learn together what matters most in life. We are excited to speak with Robert Ginsberg today, who since almost 20 years has been investigating various types of evidence for that there's life after death, like mediumship, near-death experiences, deathbed visions, and after-death communications and signs. In this fascinating conversation, Bob is sharing with us his own story, what prompted his interest in this topic, and how he started to base in his investigations on phenomena researched by credible scientists. You will hear about mediumship and how it works, and also we will learn how belief in afterlife has positive and meaningful effects on grief. Bob is telling us about grief retreats with certified mediums hosted by his Forever Family Foundation when people with profound grief would change over one weekend, transforming from tears cried of grief to tears cried of joy. It is all about the powerful connection with our deceased loved ones through mediums, he says. And you will hear examples for this connection from his own story. Bob is the author of the book The Medium Explosion and currently featured in the Netflix docuseries Surviving Death. He's also the host of the Signs of Life radio show. You can find out more about this on his website foreverfamilyfoundation.org. Let's get ready to learn more about life after death from our guest Robert Ginsberg today. Hello, Bob. I'm excited to have you as my guest today on Before It's Too Late. It's my pleasure to be with you. Bob, since almost 20 years, you've been investigating various types of evidence for that there is life after death, like near-death experiences, mediums, deathbed visions, reincarnation, and other things like that. Obviously, that's a topic that leaves no one untouched, since death itself is a topic that leaves no one untouched. So I'm really curious what brought you to this topic. Well, if, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I, I would think that it was an absurd conversation because I firmly believe that we are our brains. Our brains uh, generate consciousness. So when our brains die and we die, you know, what could possibly survive it? So, you know, I was a logical left brain thinker and it made absolutely no sense to me. After my, my daughter passed, I... Um, You know, gr grief and trauma is often a trigger to exploration, and things started happening 
that I couldn't explain, mostly, you know, through my wife. And she was having all of these experiences that I kept dismissing. But I knew that in the many decades that we were together, she never once ever lied to me. So I knew that when she said something, she was telling the truth. And I started to go further. I started to uh, investigate on my own. You know, it wasn't enough. Some people have this uh, spiritual knowledge and and faith in, in certain things. I didn't possess any of that. So I needed the science end of it. I wanted to know if there were any credible medical doctors and scientists and researchers that actually had any real evidence that we were more than a, than our physical bodies. And I started to I actually crisscrossed the United States meeting with these uh, scientists to discuss uh, consciousness. And I started to uncover a tremendous uh, amount of of evidence that didn't convince me at the time, but it certainly opened up the possibilities to me. I think it's something that, you know, if you took a survey today in various parts of the world and you, and you asked people if they believed in an afterlife, I think that the majority, I'd, I'd guess probably 70% of the people at least or, or higher, would say that they do believe. But I think what they're really saying is that they hope, you know, that hope may be based upon their religious beliefs or or things, um, you know, societal influences and so forth, or just the fear of death. But they haven't really seen any any true evidence of it. So they, it, it's not something that has legs to it, so to speak. You know, it's just like a vague hope. Uh, some people turn that hope into true belief and ultimately into a, into a knowing where they're absolutely convinced that they go to another place where their mind or their consciousness or their soul, whatever you choose to call it, um, survives their physical death. And, you know, when they come to know that, they can live their physical lives with more meaning and purpose because the fear element is, is certainly lessened or, or eradicated totally. Uh, this is so interesting. It's fascinating. When I'm listening to you speaking about going from hope to belief to knowing, and yet these are things or not, I don't know, you will please tell us more about that, that in a way are not really proven, scientifically proven, or are they? Would you elaborate a bit of the types of phenomena researched by credible scientists, like in terms of what can be really proven in that department? In most courts of law, depending on the legal system, you have to prove things beyond reasonable doubt. Um, so is there absolute proof of an afterlife? No. But I think that we've reached a point based upon the evidence that we've removed, you know, reasonable doubt. So in that sense, you know, that there's proof. But you know, will we ever have absolute proof? I don't know. I mean, probably not in my lifetime, but it could be that science with all the research on consciousness will eventually come up with it. But as far as specific things, if you believe that you are your brain uh, and your brain is what generates your own uh, consciousness and therefore your own reality, then it's not possible. You know, an afterlife is not possible because your brain dies and, and so forth. So I was looking for evidence that that our minds could act separately from our brains. And that comes in the form of things like telepathy and extrasensory perception or 
distant healing, remote viewing. There are people that are able to, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, communicate mind to mind with other living entities and some, as we'll discuss, either, you know, non-living entities. So, I mean, I did my own experiment with remote viewing where I, I drew a series of pictures every night at a set hour. Um, and I asked all of our members of the foundation and whoever wanted to join in that at that exact hour that I designated for them to tune their minds in and get a piece of paper and draw what they think I'm drawing. And at the end of, I was going to do it for five consecutive uh, nights. At the end of the series, I asked people to physically mail in all their drawings. And I, you know, I started to open them all up. This was, this was 15 years ago. And, and I wasn't really impressed. Uh, there was nothing that was significant. You know, I could stretch and think that maybe, but it really wasn't anything I should pay attention to. And the very last envelope that came in was from a woman that lives in Bend, Oregon. I was living in New York at the time, so it's 3,000 miles away. And she drew two of my pictures exactly the way that I drew it. And, you know, when I say that I'm going to draw a picture, the possibilities are, you know, in the millions. I mean, it could, could be anything. The, the other drawings uh, weren't an exact match, but she, as I knew from my research, that sometimes these people, remote viewers, can, they get all the components of that appear in the drawing. They just don't put it together. Uh, the thing that really got me is I decided on the last day, on, on, on Friday, I wasn't going to draw a picture. I was going to draw a geometric shape, and I drew a dot with concentric circles around the dot. And she nailed that exactly the way I, I drew it. You know, the interesting thing was I drew that on Friday, but she drew it on Thursday, which, which raises the question of who was remote viewing who. But so, so then you say to yourself, okay, so here it is. I'm sitting there with my brain in my skull in New York, and she's sitting there with her brain in her skull in 3,000 miles away, and yet she can clearly uh, draw exactly what I was drawing. How does that happen? So it, to me, it shows that our minds or our consciousness can extend beyond our physical brain and it can act independently of our physical brain. You know, that thought is a prerequisite for believing in life after death because if our minds or our consciousness can act independently of the brain, then when the brain is no more, it's still logical to assume that our, our mind still is. The story you were sharing with remote viewing reminds me of the idea of synchronicity, a local synchronicity, so that we bump into people we've been thinking of all the time, you know what I'm saying, which is based on shared energies. How is that remote viewing different from synchronicity? I think it's probably the same underlying principle uh, that allows all these things to happen. Yeah, you know, somehow the in synchronicities, the university has a way of taking seemingly unrelated events and having them come together to form meanings. It's amazing the way that happens. I mean, I, I, yesterday or the day before yesterday, I, I woke up or you know, around three o'clock in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I finally, I turned on the TV and I went to sleep and then I had a dream. And in the dream, uh, I was visiting, uh, you know, a well-known researcher in the field and, and his wife. And I knew them personally, but I, you know, 
I don't live near them and I don't communicate, you know, too often. And then, you know, when I got up in the morning and opened my email, the first email was from this researcher that I was visiting in my dream. So things like that, you know, we, we seem to be able to, there are these information fields that we're able to tune into and manifest in these things that, as you described, these synchronicities, we don't know, it shouldn't happen according to our known physical senses, but yet they do. Bob, you've been investigating a lot about mediumship. You are also author of the book, The Medium Explosion. So when I hear the word medium coming also from a world where there's a lot of rationalization, number-based, quantification, you know, all these things that are in some or other way parameters for um, with which you measure performance or non-performance or whatsoever. So when I hear the word medium, I still think this is a little bit like woo-woo or, <laughs> uh, you know, not really trustworthy. I'm really curious. I really want to learn from you. What is a medium and what is this all about? Well, a medium, and I shared your beliefs, you know, well, a long time ago, but a medium is somebody that claims to be able to communicate with a discarnate source, you know, an entity that it had no longer is in the physical realm. So, you know, communicating with, with the dead. The reason that I wrote the book after doing work with mediums for the past 20 years is that I frankly state in the book that according to my own, you know, research and my own anecdotal discussions, that 85 to 90% of all the mediums in the world today can't, cannot do what they claim. You know, they, not all of them are fraudulent. Some of them are, but the vast majority have some intuitive ability, as do we all, but they don't have their intuitive senses developed to the degree where they can, you know, communicate with, you know, with somebody that's no longer in the physical. So it is something that uh, many people think of, uh, and these practitioners, you know, give the, profession of mediumship a bad name because, you know, you go to see them and they're, they're horrible and, you know, they, they use tactics uh, you know, like phishing on Facebook and, you know, finding out information about the person they're giving a reading to before the reading. But yet 10% to 15% of the practitioners out there can do what they claim with um, incredible proficiency that can't be explained uh, by deception or fraud. And there is, I mean, to answer your question, there is a way to study mediumship. Um, scientists at various universities have done research using research mediums. For instance, the Winbridge Institute um, in Arizona uh, uses scientific protocol and, you know, blinding protocol. So they have Nobody's aware of anything. They use proxy sitters instead of the real sitter. They try to eliminate, you know, any possibility that the that the medium is reading the sitter's mind, and you know, and so forth. We developed, you know, after I consulted with a lot of these scientists, you know, I developed my own evaluation process that's conducted under controlled conditions. It's not a scientific experiment. We're trying to simulate the conditions of a medium sitting before a person giving a reading, and. I found, uh, which is the reason for my prior statement, that since we've been doing it since 2005, and in all of those years, we've only certified 27 mediums, you know, because I find that, you know, out of every 10 
mediums that we evaluate under these conditions, uh, nine of them fail to, to meet our standards and guidelines. And it's something that what I find is that the mediums that we've certified over the years, that doesn't mean that they'll never have a, a bad reading. You know, a lot of things have to take place for a successful reading between the, like a resonance between the person in the spirit realm, the medium and the sitter. But what we found is that the mediums that we've identified can do it on a very consistent basis. In other words, they rarely don't make a connection and they rarely have a, a bad reading. So it is something the mediumship as a whole is something that you should be always be on your guard about. I mean, think about it. It's, it's, these people are sitting in the front lines of uh, addressing people's mental health, so to speak, because they're, they're sitting with people that are in, in deep grief and uh, there are no ethical guidelines there are no regulatory bodies there are no proficiency standards there are no uh, requirements for continuing education i mean i can hang out a shingle tomorrow on my house saying bob the medium and start charging people 500 hours for a reading and and you know give them all general stuff so it it is something that needs um, attention and and people should be wary, but also be open-minded because there are people uh, that it's, it has been shown by science that they can do this. So this is definitely then a very important step that you are taking at your foundation with certifying mediums very carefully and mindfully to add credibility to mediumship. Bob, how can I tell a medium is good and serious and evidential. Can you even give us an example story of a wonderful, successful mediumship? I get into this in the book a bit, but what they do is, um, you know, first of all, you, you want to give as little information um, to the medium as possible. If the medium that says to you, who do you want to connect with? I would run the other way. That's their job to connect people to you and not for you to tell them. You know, in all the years that I've been doing this, I never had a reading personally with any of our certified mediums. And, and the reason why is that too many of them knew about my personal story. So I, I would not be able to trust the information, even though I know that they're legitimate ethical practitioners in, in my mind, the way my mind works, I have to eliminate all the possibilities. So, uh, you know, what I did is my wife passed away in 2020 and another friend, a journalist, actually the journalist who wrote the book Surviving Death, upon which the Netflix docuseries was, was based, she asked me if I wanted to have a reading with one of the mediums that's not part of our foundation but featured in the in the documentary. And I said, sure, but I, on the condition that I will only provide my first name, Bob, okay, there's, there's a million Bobs in the world, and I asked them, the my friend to pay for the reading using her own PayPal account. So there would be no record that the medium could look up. So I took those precautions. And yet I had a reading that was very, very strong. Of course, I'm scoring the reading as I'm getting it. And she brought through my deceased daughter and she brought through my, my deceased wife and with a lot of very, very specific information. So that's the key. I mean, I could give you a reading right now and I'd be a 90% accurate because I'm going to give you all sorts of general stuff. I mean, if if you're giving me a reading and you can see me and you can see my age and you say to me, I have, uh, ask me if I have a great grandmother in spirit. Well, of course I do. You know, she'd be 100. 
30 years old. I mean, it, so if I was scoring that, um, I'd have to give it a hit because it's true. It's a true statement. But if the medium said, Bob, I have your grandmother, uh, Rebecca, here, and I see um, Rebecca was a uh, – she gives me other right identifying information, including the exact name – I have to give that piece of information uh, more weight than a general statement. So a lot of mediums will resort to very general statements. They'll make assumptions about your ethnicity or some, the way you talk or the way you dress, or and they will give you general readings. Sometimes they'll give the same piece of information. They'll repeat it three or four times to give the appearance that they're getting more hits, but, you know, then in essence, they're not, you know, or mediums that work in groups. I mean, they might be in a large group and they'll say, I'm, I'm sensing um, a tightness in my chest. So I'm bringing somebody here has a loved one that died, you know, of a heart attack. Well, if you get a large group, there's going to be a large number of people that died from a heart attack or from cancer, you know, and that's not anything specific, you know, but when they give you eight or nine obscure specific pieces of information, including personality of your loved one, you know, then you can accept that because that's what mediums are supposed to do. So, I mean, there are various, um, you know, tricks to the trade, but the legitimate mediums never resort to that. You know, it's a problem that we face now in this age of, of social media that didn't exist 50 years ago. And now if the media, if the medium has your name, in 10 minutes, they could find out your whole life history by going on Facebook and all these other social platforms. So it's, it's a legitimate concern that you have to guard against. But when, if you are in grief and, and you desperately want to connect to a loved one and you get a powerful reading that convinces you beyond a doubt that, you know, the medium was connecting you, that could have tremendous positive effects on your grief. I mean, we've seen it time and time again that people are actually you know, it flips them from living a, a life of sorrow and despair to one of hope and, and comfort and, and meaning and purpose. So that's exactly what I was talking to you about, uh, Bob, because I find that extremely fascinating through the lens of how we deal with loss and how we grieve, especially now during the pandemic, right? And we are still living in a death and grief denying society, the Western world, first and foremost. And I think it's high time that we revive the lost art of grieving. It's very much covered still in shame and is considered a weakness, the grieving process itself. And this is why I would really like to hear more from you about how belief in an afterlife mediated or communicated through mediums, let's put it this way, affect grief. You were starting to talk about that, how it becomes can become a turning point into hope and also consolation and comfort. Tell us more about that. We get to experience this uh, a lot because we, when I say we, Forever Family Foundation, which is the foundation that we started in 2004. And we hold these grief retreats. And, you know, one of the grief retreats was featured in that Netflix um, docuseries where we, we allowed them to come in and film the, the whole retreat from, from Friday to Sunday night. And what we do with these retreats is that we have mediums that have been certified by the foundation that hold to do actually, uh, you know, readings for the attendees. But we also have 
scientists, we have grief professionals, professors um, that have clinical practices that also, you know, believe in life after death that can teach and hold workshops. You know, we have metaphysical practitioners. I'll usually get, give a talk about evidence of an afterlife when I'll talk about things like near-death experiences and some of the things that you mentioned, deathbed visions and reincarnation and mediumship and so forth. We give them a well-rounded thing. But the most significant transformation takes place, I think, you know, from the mediums. Because we've seen people that come in on Friday afternoon and, you know, I'll try to engage them in some conversation. They could barely speak. I mean, their, their grief is so profound. And I know because, you know, I was there. Um, and you just want to, you know, give them a hug. There's not much else that you can do. And then I see these same people Sunday night, Sunday night when they're leaving and, and they're smiling and they're joking and they're, you know, tears of joy. And then, uh, you know, you keep in touch with these people and the effects are long lasting. And usually it's attributed to, um, Sometimes it's attributed to the other things that they're exposed to, but most of the time it's because they had a powerful, you know, connection with their loved one through one of the mediums. So we see it time and, and time and time again. I mean, it really might be more a medium reading that's powerful could have a more of an effect than standard traditional, you know, grief therapy or medications that are, that are prescribed because the, the effects seem to be long-lasting, you know, well after they get the reading. It doesn't fade. It stays with them, and they go about their in navigating their physical lives, you know, with more purpose. So I never, um, as much as I'm aware of the the fraud and, and the uh, ineffectiveness um, of many of the, the mediums that are practicing out there today, I recognize the, the extraordinary, you know, power that a, that a medium reading can have on, on one's grief. That really sounds so interesting and makes me want to go to one of your grief retreats. Bob, but would you mind to share really a specific thing that a medium then would have told a grieving person, like that the listeners get a more concrete idea of what the medium really does throughout the weekend? I mean, I don't sit in on the I don't sit in on the individual readings. You know, I hear about them afterwards. But I mean, I'll give you an example from my personal history. You know, before after my daughter passed away, I went to a well-known medium. This is well before I even believed in any, any of this stuff. You know, my wife convinced me to go, and before we founded, you know, Forever Family Foundation, and I sat with the medium, and you know, with a very very skeptical frown on my face and, you know, and really not expecting much and kind of, I thought the whole thing was kind of absurd. She told me three very specific things. I mean, one, my, it turned out that my daughter was 15 years old when she passed, but she was also a, a prolific writer. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but my other daughter and my wife went on a computer and they found um, essays and poetry and, and, you know, and wisdom that she had been compiling when we thought she was, we were yelling at her for when she was up so late at night, we thought that she was talking to her friends, but she was writing. And then we, we, so we discovered all these writings and we actually published it in, in a book called Hidden Treasures. And so the first thing the medium says to me is, you know, dad, your daughter's smiling. She's telling me that she's very happy that you discovered all of her writings. And I said, wow, that was pretty significant because there aren't that many 15-year-old girls that spend all their time writing essays and poetry. So I thought that was an, you know, a pretty good piece of information. The day before we went to the medium, 
my wife got up and she, I said, what are you, where are you going? She said, there's, there's something burning. This, I smell smoke. And she went throughout the house and, you know, it was a big house and we had like three levels and she went down to the lower level and she smelled the smoke, but she didn't see any source of it. And she went all on the first floor and walked everything, checked everything, permeated, smoke permeated the house, but no source. And then she went up to the third floor and she came back and she said, I, I don't know what it is. And the medium looks at me and said, this was the night before the medium reading. And the medium says, oh, your daughter is telling me that you'll know when she's around by the smell of smoke. I said, okay. <laughs> now that's mind blowing. You know, I don't know how she could have, you know, possibly done that. And the third thing that was specific to me was that my daughter was the youngest of three, and we had this joke that went on for years and years, and she'd say to me, come on, Dad, admit it. Admit it that I'm your favorite. I know you're your favorite, so just, just say it, and we'll be done with it. And I always, I would always say, you know, Bailey, I love all my children, and I love you, but I'm not, I'm not going to say that, that you're my favorite. So when we went to the cemetery, I had gone to her grave, and I sat down, and I said, okay, Bill, I admit it you are my favorite. And then the medium said to me, dad, your daughter is telling me that she's smiling, that you finally acknowledged that she was your favorite. So, you know, I, I drove home. I, I was, this was in a hotel room in Manhattan and we lived out in the suburbs and I'm driving home and I this kind of blew apart my world a little bit because I couldn't figure out, I'm looking for an angle of how she could have known these things, but how could she? You know, I mean, the, the thing with the smoke happened the night before, you know, so that's an example of things that I would consider specific information as opposed to, you know, you know, general stuff that would apply to many, many people. And that, those are the types of things that, that evidential mediums give to, you know, the, these sitters during these readings. That is so fascinating, Bob. Thank you so much for sharing your story and also for putting so much effort in really differentiating meaningful mediumship from and ethically serious mediumship from fraud and just general stuff that is clearly then a ripoff. Is there anything else you want to add to today's conversation? Well, I mean, people should, you know, become aware of certainly other types of evidence. And we mentioned near-death experiences, which is tremendously evidential because you have people that meet every definition of death. I mean, that medical science has to offer. They have no brain waves. They have no respiration. They have no heartbeat. They have no reflexes. You know, they're not breathing. You know, they meet, they're dead. And yet they come back uh, when they're resuscitated, some people, and have these clear and lucid experiences, which you wouldn't expect from a brain that was dying. I mean, if your brain is di is dead or dying, you're not going to have clear thinking. They describe thinking clearer than they've ever had, you know, in their lives. And some report to seeing deceased uh, loved ones or and describe this other realm, uh, you know, that they describe having the, all these vibrant colors. Uh, a lot of them, people describe being above their body. In other words, their consciousness separates from their body. They can actually see this, the surgeons and, and the operating room people that are 
working in the room and later describe all the conversations and sometimes from their vantage point outside the body they could describe things that were going on you know elsewhere so near-death experiences i think are tremendously evidential of the fact that we're more than our physical bodies you know these people are dead and yet they still exist it truly truly remains a fascinating topic bob so all we need to do is to decide to believe in life after life. Is that right? Yeah, and of course, we're not, we're not trying to convince anybody, but just, you know, just to become aware of the evidence and form your own opinion. But as you mentioned earlier on the show, I mean, we many people live their lives in fear of death. They do everything possible to avoid it. And, you know, that, and we have, you know they'll, they'll medicate themselves. They'll, 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 they do all, all sorts of things, you know, in surgeries. I mean, everything to avoid this. And it affects their, their everyday decisions. So if you do come to believe that you're more than, than your physical, physical body, I think that has tremendous um, positive effects on our, on our physical lives, you know, not, not necessarily what's going to happen later. That's amazing, Bob. Thank you so much for having been my guest on Before It's Too Late today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Great conversation. I really enjoyed this profound conversation, and I hope you did too. For more episodes of Before It's Too Late make sure to subscribe. If this episode spoke to you, consider sharing it with a friend or loved one you think might benefit from it. Thank you for listening.